0: You're listening to
1: Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. We are honored to be joined by Dr. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, but more important for our purposes, a very committed expositional preacher. Dr. Mohler, thank you for joining us. Stephen, it's great to be with you. My first uh, foray into your writing on preaching was in A Passionate Plea for Preaching, Feed My Sheep, that little book, right. of Soul of Day, Glory Glory. You made an interesting statement out there that preaching is the central act of Christian worship. Then you follow that later with he is not silent. First chapter preaching in Christian worship. So I want to ask the question everybody else wants to know.
0: Why do you hate music so much? Yeah, I love music, but music tends to predominate in many circles where, uh, quite frankly, is outside of a biblical proportion. The, the church has as its assignment, first and foremost, the feeding of the sheep in terms of congregational worship. That's that's what happens. God is glorified as his word is preached. Right. This is a, a part of the inheritance of the Reformation. It's a part of what was necessary to recover the grounding in terms of authority by which the church speaks. How how are Christians made, and and how do Christians grow? It's by the feeding that comes to them by God's Word. Uh, our understanding of the of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God is a part of a total theological package in which we understand the most decisive issue for us is that there is a God, as Francis Schaeffer said, and He is not silent. And this God who exists and is not silent has spoken to us. The most important thing his creatures could possibly do is to hear him. We have the honor of hearing his voice. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the children of Israel celebrate God speaks through Moses. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? God loves music. Colossians 3 makes very clear that music has uh, an honored place in Christian worship. But the most important thing that God's people do in worship is to listen to him speak. And he speaks through his word.
1: Since you mentioned inerrancy, you have one chance to write a book on preaching, and at least you take this one chance. You write a theology of preaching in right. essence. And I can't help but read into a little bit biographically what's gone with our Southern Baptist Convention. Yes. Some have argued that the turn toward an affirmation of inerrancy in all of our seminaries has pushed
0: us to a point of exposition. Uh, can you speak to that? Uh, certainly. I would simply say this. Uh, I would go back to, to what I was just talking about in terms of the doctrine of Revelation and how decisive that is for us. And once you affirm that in its totality as the Scripture bears witness to itself, well then what would you do in preaching but preach that word? What, what would you do but do what Ezra did? when uh, he and others in Nehemiah 8 read the text and explained its meaning. That, that's exactly what we do. That is the nature of expository preaching. You have to be clever to come up with something other than this. Right. Expository <laughs> right. preaching is actually the most natural form of preaching you could possibly imagine. Right. You read the Word of God and you explain it.
1: Yeah. If that's the case, if our theological turn pushed us to this application of exposition, and assuming we're on a trajectory that's not an end, What's next? What, what, what's, what is our doctrine taking us to next in terms of preaching?
0: Well, I, I want to say that uh, I hope it takes us to expository preaching. It certainly logically should. That doesn't mean that it's adequately at the center of the agenda of most preachers. Right. Uh, the theological consequences of the full affirmation of biblical authority and inerrancy uh, may, uh, may take some time to settle in. And quite frankly, I think you can look all around the evangelical world and see all kinds of experiments of preachers trying to do anything but preach an expositional sermon. And uh, furthermore, there's still a lot of confusion about what exposition is. There are a lot of people who label themselves as expository preachers because they think well of Scripture. Thinking well of Scripture is not enough.
1: Okay. You have a robust itinerant ministry? But outside of that, tell us about your preaching. Um, where are you preaching now? Are you doing something where you're actually preaching
0: new sermons, working through text? I'm a teaching pastor at Highview Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I have been for uh, many years. I teach the auditorium exposition class, which I've done for, I guess it'll be headed towards 20 years. Okay. And I preach verse by verse of the scripture. Okay. And uh, they are uh, they're available on the Internet. They're also uh, broadcast on radio in certain states and uh, it, it, we're, we were years in Matthew. We are, uh, we're, we're right now in, in Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, we've been in Hebrews for a long time, but we see the, uh, the end of it coming. I, I would not know what to do, nor would I know who I am, if I was not involved in a project of regular expository preaching, which does mean for me taking the Bible word for word, verse for verse. Uh, expository preaching is the greatest check on the preacher's eccentricities on the the preacher's arbitrary uh, agenda uh, or theological proclivities if you have to preach every word of every book and obviously that would that would take a very long ministry but if you're taking major books of the bible and uh, preaching through them verse by verse and dealing with every word that's one of the greatest protections that any any preacher could have or any congregation could have in its preacher for the fact that the Word of God will be accurately taught.
1: Hmm. What do you mean protection for the
0: preacher? Well, it's protection because uh, if it's in the text, you have to preach it. Uh, that's a protection from being charged with having arbitrarily chosen this text as if you're arbitrarily doing this to step on someone's toes or because uh, the text deals with adultery and uh, you just happen to know that someone has uh, has been struggling with that. Well this is the text. The Holy Spirit sets the agenda for the text. The text is preached. The text does what the text does because God speaks through his word and convicts people of sin through his word. Opens persons hearts to receive the gospel by his word. Uh, corrects uh, our intuitions, our inclinations, and our worldviews by his word. Uh, parents all of a sudden learn how they're supposed to discipline their children. Children learn how they're supposed to obey their parents. Business people learn how they're supposed to keep their books. Uh, you know, it, it's all a part of what happens in the context of preaching. If we're choosing what we're going to talk about every week, uh, whether it's by topical preaching or by this kind of uh, anecdotal exposition where people think, here's a great text, I'm going to preach highlights of the Book of Romans. Well, preaching highlights of the Book of Romans means, number one, you're choosing highlights. That's a certain consideration of the text that, that is not, I think, fully consonant with biblical authority. And then furthermore, it means that you are skipping over intentionally other parts of the Book of Romans which, A, you may not want to preach, or, or, or B, you may not know how to preach, or C, you, uh, you just may think uh, is not so relevant. That's not our choice to make. The, the greatest protection against arbitrary theological systems, or, uh, or for that matter, the lack of any theological consistency, is verse-by-verse exposition, because you have to deal with every text.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we often say good expository preaching is topical preaching. It's just letting God choose the topic, right? So we're not. And in it's applicatory.
0: It's life application. It's practical, but uh, but it all comes out of the text.
1: Do you have a favorite genre to preach? Uh, parable, narrative.
0: No, I've done a lot of work in the parables because I think they're woefully neglected by most expositors. I, I think the parables are grossly misunderstood and often badly preached as you know in my definition of expository preaching i think one of the things that i stress that some others do not is that the text by its narrative by its parabolic by its uh, historical or uh, or poetic genre sets the agenda for how the sermon is to be preached if all of your sermons follow the same structure you're imposing a structure on a text yeah. because the text of scripture are not all the same a parable is not an historical passage narrative is not poetry those are very different things
1: I've heard you preach twice live, um, mm-hmm. this is why I'm asking, both parables. Um, yes. Rich man and Lazarus, and then right. I was a pastor, 28 years old. Heard you preach Luke 15, the prodigal son. Yeah. An insight there about the um, the older brother set me on a trajectory of studying parables that I haven't yet gotten oh, really? over. So great. really
0: grateful for that. Yeah, the parables are a life experiment uh, for me, uh, kind of a project. Uh, I, I read everything I can get on them, I, uh, and, and uh, you know we have access to a lot of material in the parables that previous generations did not have uh, simply by the fact that we have so many other examples of parabolic literature from the first century. Right. Uh, we understand as I often say and you've heard me say, um, we think of the parables as if they belong to the genre of Aesop's fables. Yeah. Uh, they don't. They belong to the genre of a hand grenade. Right. <laughs> uh, they, they are detonating stories. Horribly convicting. Yeah. But I love narrative. I, I, I will be preaching this morning Uh, A narrative passage, an entire chapter, John chapter 9. In order to make the point, again, the narrative or the text sets the agenda. Uh, Part of what I want to do this morning is show how easy expositional preaching is. Now, it's an art. It's a science. It's a craft you're learning all your life. But uh, I'm actually going to talk about the fact that uh, what we do is read the text and explain it. Now, there's skill in that. There's craft in that. But that's essentially it. So if you commit to that, the liberty is, you're not scrambling for structure, it unfolds there for you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when I speak about structure, the problem is that a lot of people, uh, and this may be more of a problem for a certain generation than for a younger generation, who have a certain pattern and the text is there you know if for instance if you're finding multiple alliterated points in a parable you, you're not finding them in the parable parables do not have points parables have a point right uh, and uh, and generally it's uh, it's one that's about to explode in your face yeah uh on the other hand historical passages generally don't have much of a point and 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 so if you're finding points you're probably moralizing from the text uh on the other hand there are didactic passages that very clearly have points the apostle paul Argues following Greco-Roman kinds of argumentation and rhetoric a layout pretty much like we would be familiar with if we were taking a speech course today So it yeah. depends on the text. Yeah.
1: so I, I think you might agree with the statement that a lot of reaction against expository preaching is not Reaction against preaching a text. It's reaction against a style form of the heavy alliteration the predictable style form right. that some expositors have done But every text doesn't warrant
0: Right, and also there there can be bad examples of expository preaching. Uh, there can be expository preaching that is dull, not because of the text, but because of the preacher. Uh, there there can be expository preaching that is pedantic or superficial or motivist. There are all kinds of things that you can do wrongly, uh, but uh, what we should aim for is to uh, is to get it right. Can we talk about your preparation for a second? Sure.
1: Um, not. Uh, knowing everybody's gifts are different, personality is different. I'm not asking for the the seminary answer, but your personal answer. Uh, Tell us about, in a nutshell, your preparation process and anything that might surprise us about what you do to get ready to preach.
0: Well, I think all of a preacher's life is preparation in that you are collecting data and impressions and thoughts all the time. And they go into a bank. And so, one of the first things I want to say to preachers is, if you're new at this, it's a lot harder than if you've been doing this for 40 years uh, simply because you, you do gain a great deal of momentum in terms of your understanding of Scripture, in terms, of, you know, quite frankly, uh, the Scriptures that I preach get so lodged in my own heart that they come back to me all the time. You know, I was talking to a preacher the other day who said, you know, I wouldn't have known how to start if I didn't have a Thompson chain reference Bible. And as a teenager, I had the same thing. I know exactly what he meant. You know, you don't know a whole lot of the scripture, but by means of those chain references, you can find out, you interpret scripture by scripture. You're... But but when, once you preach all the way through all the Gospels, you preach through the letters of Paul, you preach to Romans, and 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 then you go over and preach outside the Pauline literature. You preach Hebrews, you, you you preach the Book of Revelation, you preach through a good deal of the Old Testament. It's all in there, and, and it all begins to come together. But in terms of how I prepare, I start with the text. We simply have to, and uh, to make sure I have a good understanding of the text. And, uh, and that's where the language work is done. Now, my language work is not as if I'm getting ready to write an exegetical commentary on right. the text. It's, it's for homiletical purposes and also so that I can have the confidence to know that the translation from which I'm going to preach, it's almost always the ESV or the New American Standard, uh, is, uh, is accurate, not only in terms of being merely accurate, but, but really is, is accurate in terms of, of the flow of the text, it, its language and expression. And, and that's good, and especially with a with a with a good translation, because it's important that we preach out of a translation. That's the the, the vernacular. We want people to be able to read it in the text and follow. Right. Us. Thankfully, many of these uh, translations are so good that's not really a problem. And, and and then of course you do the larger context of the book, and then you focus on the text that you're going to be preaching. And uh, commentary work is important. Uh, I find, in one sense, it gets less important as I go along, uh, partly because you have so many. Things that have come into your life and your mind as you're thinking about these books. But on the other hand, there's some, there's some really good thoughts that you need to make sure are corrected, if necessary, by commentary work. Uh, or uh, that new data is given to you new insights that, that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Uh, and, and then I, I walk around with the text. That, that, that may just be my own eccentricity, but you ask. I, mean? I, I walk around with the text. I, I let the text just, I walk physically <laughs> physically walk. sometimes I'll yeah. often walk you know and I'll just uh, I'll just think the text and think about how I would most naturally uh, uh, talk about it and, he, and here's something that I think preachers don't think about preaching is not conversation not not in the classic sense it, it's an oration it's a it's a delivery of a message but if you have problems thinking about how to explain a text or, or how to do this Use a conversational model. Imagine that you're sitting down next to someone, not in front of a congregation, but sitting down next to someone to explain the text to them. And, and, and that will naturally produce the kind of, uh, the, the kind of structure and thoughts that, that you, would, you would want to convey in terms of a message. A message is a literary thing. Uh, it, that, that's the hardest part. Now, it's also the part I enjoy the most, uh, and that is thinking about exactly which words to use where transitions are important and how to make them, where the intensity of the text requires a certain momentary pause to allow the text to settle in, Uh, where there's going to be something said that's going to need to detonate and you're gonna need to let it detonate and step back and then go back to it again. That's the craft of preaching. And, and that happens over time. You know, when you first get up and preach, you know, you think you have a 30-minute sermon and it takes eight minutes. Right. And uh, you realize the bigger problem is once you've been doing this for a long time, you're supposed to give a 30-minute sermon, and it's 50. Yeah.
1: I, the more I've talked to guys, I find that as they grow and season as expositors, less dependent on commentaries and more on meditation. And I would think even taking your conversation ideas probably yeah. all wrapped up in the idea of meditation and then maybe to extend that thought, some guys you see that are absolutely just overwhelming with the text has more yeah. to do with the time they've taken. They had so much time to ruminate on that, it just changed them. And you, you, know, you see that in the preaching moment. The only
0: reason I, I and meditate a good word. It's in the Psalms. You know, in other words, it's a good word. The problem is that so many people think of meditation. They think of just thinking. Right. And and this is where the preacher can't ever separate his thinking from the text. The text has to be right in front of him. He's right. got to be thinking this text. So you're going to a conference,
1: someone is there on the program, you hear that you're gonna hear them preach, and you get really excited. Uh I'm not asking you who the best preacher is, but who do you enjoy hearing the most, or some of those guys?
0: Wow. Well, see, this is where I, uh, I probably would differ from some others, because I have a pretty broad range of persons I really enjoy listening to. And and, and I—it's a dangerous question. It's kind of like recommending books because right. there are books I recommend sometimes that I'm not in full agreement with. Right, so I'm qualifying. Yeah, I'm and I understand that. Yeah. But it's still it's still one of those things where I I would say that I grew up in a culture in which I heard uh, preachers that uh, that changed my life decisively from the Southern Baptist tradition overwhelmingly, and uh, that uh, I I grew up listening to people. Like uh, Adrian Rogers, who was a pastor right. in Florida, right uh, right up the coast from where I was. Um, I, I listened to O.S. Hawkins when I was a teenager. Probably drives him a little nuts to, to uh, have me put it quite that chronologically, but I was a teenager at the time when well, he was at First Baptist Fort Lauderdale. I, I heard Dr. W. Criswell preach the first time. Wow. And, uh, and literally it changed my view of preaching. I don't think I preach exactly like Dr. Criswell, right. but his grandeur. The, the the grandeur of what he thought preaching was and what he gave his life to was right. that way. Uh, among Southern Baptists, uh, I mean, I, I still uh, you know miss hearing the the living voice of Adrian Rogers. I enjoy people like Jerry Vines and uh, Paige Patterson. You know, gave and gives his life to expository mm-hmm. preaching and is one of those figures who I think, like myself, is more alive in the pulpit than anywhere else. You know, it, it's all there. He's just he's fully present. That that's what he's here for. It's what God made him to do. Uh, I have dear friends who are expositors. Mark is one of my dearest friends, uh, highly committed to expository preaching. We committed ourselves to it uh, together and thinking about it together and working through it together when we were very, very young. And uh, no one in the world knew who we were. Uh, I love hearing uh, uh, David Jeremiah. I get to hear every once in a while. I think, I think he gives such serious attention uh, to the text. John MacArthur is one of my dearest friends and I think one of the most powerful expositors of the 20th century. Uh, a man who's fully given himself to this project and preaching now through the entire New Testament uh, more than forty years. I mean what a what, what a testimony of faithfulness in that. Uh, then I, th- I think there are a whole range of of really good expositors out there that uh, that uh, range across uh, you know kind of denominational and and different kinds of trajectories who are really doing a very, very good job. Uh, I also think of a lot of British preachers, you know from from Dick Lucas and and uh, folks like that who are just very powerful expositors. And I'm going to tell you something. I've learned a lot about part of the rhetorical challenge in preaching from people who are theologically outside anything I would want to affirm. You know, uh, I often tell some of my students, uh, if if you don't understand why some of these preachers we don't agree with had such powerful and influential ministries is because you don't understand how much they gave themselves to, uh, to preaching as, uh, a- as an event and as an act. And so, yeah, there are people I've listened to for years, and I think, you know, if only your theology was right, you would be a magnificent preacher. But, but we can learn a lot, uh, as Paul. I mean, Paul actually, even when Paul says he's not trusting in rhetoric, he's using classical Greco-Roman rhetoric That's to right. say he's not. Uh, and uh, lest the cross of Christ be robbed of its power. We can learn a lot from just communication and in uh, public speaking and uh, this is where younger preachers often are intimidated because they see someone who looks like a natural public speaker. Well that's uh, more of an illusion than they know. You know at some point that person was not a natural public speaker that had to develop.
1: Well we have to let you go preach unfortunately. Um, in, in, can you give me a two-minute answer or two-sentence answer to this question? Are you encouraged or discouraged about preaching today?
0: i'm encouraged i, I, I think uh, i would i would be honestly more encouraged now than uh, any time in the last say 20 or 30 years yeah and and what most encourages me is that at the very least the younger generation of pastors coming uh wants to be expositional yeah. the, the, the in other words you no longer have to defend expositional as a necessary modifier of preaching the kind of preaching that they want to do uh, i'm discouraged in that there, there is a constant temptation which evidently is not limited to any previous generation, to do anything other than preach the text and sometimes think that you are preaching the text. You know, at the end of the day, the text is the message. The the preacher's role and any word outside the text is to serve the text. The text doesn't serve the sermon. And uh, for true exposition to take place, God's people have to hear the word and, and hear the word then, explained. And that explanation includes everything from helping them to understand what, uh, what the text, as I say in, in my definition of preaching there, requires us, of us in terms of thinking and acting differently.
1: Dr. Muller, for your commitment to exposition uh-huh. and personally for the times you've had a significant influence on my oh. life, I'm extremely grateful. Well, it's a real
0: joy. There's nothing that I'd rather talk about than this. Oh, great. Thank you for joining us. Sure. I appreciate it.